Hi, my name is Hero Bean Stevenson, and you're listening to the All of Us podcast, where we explore and embrace mental health through the simple act of honest conversation. Before we get into it, I'd like to mention that in sharing my personal experiences and insights, I do not claim to be an authority or expert on any of the issues that might come up in the discussion you're about to hear. These conversations include in-depth discussion around various mental health-related topics, the details of which may be triggering to some. So please take care while listening. Finally, thank you for coming and enjoy the episode. Today I'm speaking with Elise Resch, who is a woman I'm so lucky to have in my life. She's a nutrition therapist with 38 years in the field and is the pioneer of the intuitive eating program, which is a radical path of recovery for those dealing with any kind of an eating disorder that really is revolutionary for the way that it puts an emphasis on honoring a holistic and empowered approach. Her first book, Intuitive Eating, was published in 1995 and is now on its fourth edition. It sold over half a million copies and also exists as an audiobook in two separate editions. Apart from this original book, she also has a workbook and two other solo authored books. You can find Elise's work pretty much anywhere books and audiobooks are sold and on her website, intuitiveeating.org. She also has a personal website, which is eliseresh.com. Her name is Elise, E-L-Y-S-E, Resh, R-E-S-C-H. Elise and I met almost five years ago when I walked into her office as a new patient, and since then, she has played such an immense role in my life as a therapist, a guide, and now, most of all, a really trusted friend. That's all for the intro. Now, here's the conversation. Bye. Okay, we're going. Okay, hi, Hero. Hi. Thank you. in your purple room. Yeah, this is my uh, home office. This is my home office. It's great. It's not really meant to be an office. It's a sitting room, but um, I've taken it over for the last almost five months. Nice. Yeah, I feel like everyone's kind of had to rearrange their homes. Correct. Their work for the last. I did a my living or my entry room that, like, when you first open the door, is now where a yoga mat is, and I do my attempted home exercise in the morning that usually lasts like a solid 14 minutes before I notice that the kitchen is right there and that like something more fun can happen there. <laughs> and you start getting hungry yeah that's exactly what I did today I had I woke up I had my breakfast I did 14 minutes of exercise and then thought it would probably be a good idea to start preparing lunch so <laughs> quarantine is fun so it's, uh, you have to be creative, though, to keep it fun, right? Yes, definitely. Yes. How are you? How, I haven't I, seen you in real life in months. No, probably a year. I, really. Has it been a year? Oh, we've I would spoken on the that. phone. I don't know if we've seen each other, though. No, I don't think we've seen each other for a really, really long time. Hi, I'm good. I'm busier than I've ever, ever, ever been, I think, just because... Uh, well, the release of the fourth edition of Intuitive Eating came out in June, you know, that was June. And there's been uh, kind of a virtual book tour going on for, for weeks, all kinds of things, interviews and <clears throat> podcasts and um, 
talks and things like that. And I also am in the last stages of an intuitive eating journal book that will be out next year. So that was happening. I had two books going on at the same time. So this is separate from, I know when we were working together a lot, you did a, a, a team book. You were working on a team. Right. The team book came out last year. So for the last five years I have been writing and there've been four books in five years. And, uh, and there's actually something else that I have on my agenda that is due on September 1st. It's an intuitive eating deck of cards. Oh, that's so Have you ever seen any of these, you know, psychological deck of cards like they have them for DBT and for... I actually, I think like the only really me gift my brother has ever gotten me. Sorry if, if you're listening, Ryland, but I think... It's, I think it's because I picked it out, but he, last year for Christmas, he got me a deck of, like, magical unicorn cards, Ooh. and you pick, like, it's a whole deck of these unicorn cards, and you pick one up, and it has, like, a different really positive message, mm-hmm. unicorn-themed, so I, ha- I do know about the cards, and then right. I have, my mom has angel cards in her house. Yeah, so this is this will be 52 intuitive eating inspirations, I guess, each card where you yeah. just pick one for the day, wherever, you know, it doesn't have to be a daily thing. You just pick one and focus on that. So there's a lot of that going then, on. Are you doing these with your writing partner? Or is it, are these just you? So the, the teen book was just me. The fourth edition was the two of us co-authored. The journal book is just me and the cards are the two of us. So and what's her name? Evelyn Triboli. How long have you guys been working together? 27 years. The first book or the first uh, edition of intuitive eating came out in 1995 and we started working on it two years before. It takes about two years to get a book published from the time you, you know, write the proposal, send it in, get it approved and it, it actually comes out. Does she work with you in, as, um, as another therapist and nutritionist? No, no. She lives an hour away. She lives in Newport Beach and she has her own practice and we do intuitive eating certification. Uh, and so she has the bulk of that and that she has a teleseminar that people have to take and that's a big piece of it. And then each of us does individual supervision. So you guys train other nutritionists to kind of, to, to treat people in your style of all over the world and not just nutritionists but uh psychotherapists also can be certified intuitive eating counselors so it was an honor to be able to to be a patient of yours and now it's an honor to have you on the podcast i feel like you're a real pioneer thank you treatment it's so crazy that we're able to do this i remember telling you kind of early on or like maybe mid mid arc of my treatment that I really wanted to use my experience to do something positive. But I remember you saying, I think right now you're not in a, I'm sorry to say, but you're not in a place where you're healthy enough to where you could be a help to other people yet. And how, how nice that it, and I, at that point, honestly, didn't see myself arriving at the place that in, in what in I, I didn't see myself arriving at a place where I I guess practically could be helpful to other people and now it's just a really beautiful thing that here we are. But see, I knew you would get there. Oh. And a huge piece of the work that we did in my theme is your autonomy. So, yeah. you know, it was about you coming along at the pace you needed to and exploring what you needed to do and be ready for what 
full healing look like? Totally. In my first, I recorded my first episode ever with Ben, my boyfriend. And I wasn't, it honestly wasn't even supposed to be the first episode. It was, I think, a a week ago today. And I was kind of, he knew I wanted to start the podcast. And I kind of, I tend to be a procrastinator. And I was just kind of like, well, I have to think about who I want to be the first person. And maybe it should be me, but I really have to think this through. So it's really perfect. And he, we were having lunch at my house and then he left and he called me and he said, right now I'm on my way to Home Depot, like at the other side of the city. It's going to be a long drive. I want you to download this app that can record our phone call. And we're going to do the first podcast episode now. While he was driving. While he was driving. He goes, you don't have to ever release it. I just think that we need to start because if it's, if it was up to you, you would be kind of like planning this all out. And who knows when it would happen. And so we did it. And one of the things I talked about in my healing was that something really pivotal and magical about when I started working with you is that you never had the expectation of me that I would abide by a prescribed eating plan. And I kind of mentioned that that really, because I had been before you when I still lived in New York, I briefly was in an outpatient rehab and I had seen briefly other nutritionists who kind of led by the more old school mm-hmm. practice of here are the things that you need to eat to gain such and such amount of weight. And if you don't do this, basically like you could die, this could happen. It's going to be horrible unless you do exactly this plan. And that I would look at these plans and be like, Oh yeah, for sure. Like I'll follow your plan and go home and just like plan was not a thing. And so with you, I think from the very beginning, you kind of asserted to me that it was going to be a longer process, but that it would be effective. And I think we were seeing each other consistently for, for I think, like two or three years. Um, but it really, I totally accredit your kind of, you're giving your patients autonomy to my holistic healing. And for me to not kind of like, it's not a daily struggle for me now to live the way that I do and to eat the way I do, it truly brings me so much joy. Obviously I have some days that are more difficult than others as everyone who has any kind of mental health, anything deals with. But I really think that I've arrived in this place honestly and sincerely because of the way your, your treatment style. Um, So I wanted to ask you how, when you started doing this work, first of all, what kind of led you down this path? And then also what made you kind of, um, like rewrite the narrative a little bit and, and design intuitive eating? Such a good question. Um, I was an elementary school teacher in my first career and uh, I loved it, but I didn't want to do that forever and went back to graduate school at 30 and was working. I did my traineeship at uh, a facility or a clinic affiliated with Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. I was working with developmentally disabled kids and running the the eating clinic there. And uh, when I finally, you know, passed my tests and got credentialed, I thought this is the work I'm going to do. I want to work with kids who have, you know, developmental issues, but it just didn't happen that way. Um, the, The referrals weren't there. And I ended up getting referrals from MDs who are very much medical model uh, around weight loss. And I didn't want to deal with that because I knew even then that it was not going to be a very happy place to be in. So um, I did that for a little while, um, 
just helping people, you know, kind of giving them the meal plans that you're talking about, because that's what I was taught in school. And, you know, they do well for a while, and then they wouldn't be able to keep to it. And I'm like, I don't know what to say to you, because I don't understand. And then I, I have a deep love for therapy and psychology. And so I started studying so much about the psychology of eating and the psychology of people. And uh, learned um, so much about the developmental stages that we go through in childhood and how that um, those stages really stay with us through our whole lives. And I can go more into detail about that if you want, but uh, I, I do want to back up and say that I had an eating disorder uh, right before I started graduate school. And <coughs> excuse me. And so I'm sure that's what led me to wanting to talk about food and eating with people. I just didn't understand why or how, but it was kind of that spiritual inspirational thing. Can I ask you just before you keep going like, the path of your career, what your eating disorder looked like? Yeah, it was uh, dieting, uh, wanting to be as thin as I could be to feel good about myself uh, from a psychological level to have some control in a life that I had no felt I had no control in. I didn't understand that then. Uh, a way of coping, a way of distracting myself from the emotions that I didn't want to deal with. But of course, inevitably for me, not for everyone, but for many people, the restricting led to binging. So it was um, a diet, binge, diet, binge, um, probably would have been diagnosed with anorexia at one point because I lost my period for four months and, but couldn't keep that up. And so it came back and um, it was, it was a way to live that got me through some hard times. And so I honor it and I respect it and I'm grateful for it because it, I think really brought me to doing this work and really understanding my clients. Yeah. That's such an amazing thing to really, I think I've kind of, thought about and shared with people a few times that as hard as my years of, of an eating disorder were, I really honor them. And I wouldn't, even though it became unfortunately pretty detrimental to my health and I did some long-term damage that has since been slept like repair. I've lost my period for, I think almost five years. It's now back. Um, I got osteoporosis, which you would always warn me about. I thought was a total hoax. Mm -hmm. And I got that too, um, which is, we're working on that. Um, but I really, even though I, um, I ended up kind of causing long-term harm, I still would never trade those years. I think that they really led me to have a relationship with myself that I wouldn't have been able to have now. Um, so yeah, I think it's a beautiful thing to be able to, to acknowledge that you honor that time. Yeah, I think staying in gratitude and understanding things from a spiritual standpoint that we have to go through certain things to get to other places. Yeah. Uh, is, it, it takes you away from blame or shame. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. So yeah, if you could keep going on. Okay, so, so I started uh, really understanding the psychology of, um, well, the, the developmental psychology. So let me tell you a little bit about that and briefly. Um, Eric Erickson was a psychologist, uh, psychoanalyst who created a model called the eight stages of man. And I kind of chuckle and say, if you were around, I'd say, come on, it's got to be the eight stages of human, not man. But in any case, it's for all people. And he believed that each uh, individual goes through these eight stages throughout their 
you know, uh, early childhood and, and early parts of their life. Uh, and at each stage, there's a developmental task that they have to accomplish. And there's a crisis that occurs if they don't accomplish it, because then they can't go on to the next stage in a helpful way. And the whole purpose is to develop a healthy ego. And so um, the first two stages were the ones that really grabbed me because the first one is called trust versus mistrust. And uh, that starts with the feeding relationship. You know, the minute an infant is born, they're kind of scared. They don't know what, you know, that the world's going to be a safe place. And so the only way that they can start to develop a trust in the world and a trust that they're going to be okay is through the feeding relationship. So if they have a, you know, someone who is feeding them, a parent, a caregiver, whoever it is, who is really attuned to their hunger and fullness signals, uh, baby cries, the baby gets fed. They're not, you know, told to wait. Like there used to be these schedules where you'd feed babies every four hours, which is ridiculous. Um, they're hungry, they cry, they get fed. When they're full, they turn their little heads and you can't get more food in them. So what ends up happening with this consistent care is they start to trust that they're hunger and fullness signals are reliable because somebody's responding to them. And they're also, they learn that their needs will be met in life because somebody is there for them for these very primitive, I mean, feeding is the, eating is the most primitive need. For babies who don't get that, if they have neglect or they have a, a, a parent or a caregiver who's not attuned to this, they start to mistrust the world and um, they don't, accomplish this task of trust versus mistrust. And I think that intuitive eating actually helps people who haven't had that kind of healthy beginning to start to trust themselves and trust their inner signals. So it's, and Eric Erickson, um, I, I'm going to go to the, I'm sorry, what? Like this, this idea of reparenting that's become really popular. Completely reparenting. It's, that's what it's all about. And he believed, and I love this, that at any point in our lives, we can go back to one of these developmental stages and heal it if it never was accomplished. So, uh, so yes, reparenting and helping them trust. And then the second stage, that first one goes from birth to about 18 months. And the second stage starts when they're toddlers, you know, around 18 months until three years old. When they start to realize, you know, these little babies that were attached by the umbilical cord and don't realize that that umbilical cord has been cut for a long time. When they start to realize they can walk, they can walk out of a room, come back in and mommy will still be there. They can put their clothes on, they can pick the toys they want to play with, they can pick which foods they want to eat. This is when solid foods, you know, are a big part of their lives. At that stage, that's called, called autonomy versus shame and doubt. And so to me, that's where the autonomy piece comes in, because these little toddlers, their favorite word is no. So, you know, mommy tells them, go pick up your toys. No, come to eat. No you know, and, um, but that's healthy, because if they don't have that ability to speak up and say, no, I want to do it my way, then they're not developing their ego. And so the best job that a parent can do is to help them be independent, fall down, make mistakes, get up, not be criticized for it, you know, encouraged to just keep going on, and having their own mind, then they develop this sense of autonomy. So here's where it connects to eating and eating disorders and, and adults. To me, we all humans retain 
these parts of ourselves that were very early in our lives. So the little kid, that, that rebellious little kid that comes up when, when you know, they weren't allowed to do what they wanted as toddlers is in us as teenagers, big time, and then all through our lives. So going back to what we were talking about with your treatment, it's like, if I tell you what to do and eat these foods and make sure you have this, you know, this amount every day, your little toddler is going to go, oh yeah, just the way you said, go home and not do it. Yeah, and then even more than that, as we become older, we become older and we learn about about lying. Uh huh. Disorders already are so sneaky, and correct. Not only are most of the time lying to yourself, but the people around you. And so there were many times when you would suggest something to me, like a practice to kind of work on over the week. And I would come back and you would ask me how it went and I would totally lie about it because I think, I think that the root of that was a lot of shame around the fact that I, at that point, couldn't carry out the very simple exercises that you were requesting of me. Um, but yeah, completely. I think that the stricter that kind of the rules are, um, I think the, the stronger somebody um, is going to want to object to rebel and that showed your healthy ego and i I do think that the only reason that we lie is when we don't want the consequence of telling the truth and so you know feeling like you had let me down but you see that wasn't the relationship it was more of um sure i had some science behind me i had some psychology behind me i taught you certain things that would be important for your well-being and you know and progress and uh, you take it, you or anyone, I'm not only picking you out, but anyone who's trying to heal from an eating disorder wants to please mommy, you know? And so if you don't please mommy, it's just easier to lie than to say, I couldn't do it or didn't do it, even right. though it's really not about mommy, it's about you, right? And I think that also it's so like, you want to maintain this, the deception to yourself that what you're doing isn't that bad. Correct. The consequences of looking the way you want to or feeling the way you want to in the in the anorexia or in whatever eating disorder um, consequence that you're sitting in isn't as isn't like a, the trade-off's not too bad. Like it's not too harmful to keep going like this. Where it really yeah, yeah it's very scary to let go of coping mechanisms it if is. you don't have anything to replace them with. So if the restriction, let's say, in anorexia or if it's binging for some people or bulimia or whatever it is, it's getting them through life because they don't know other ways to cope. So the idea of giving that up and not feeling like they're on solid ground with anything else is terrifying. The other part of that, unfortunately, is when someone is undernourished, their brains aren't really fully working. So it's pretty uh, easy to, you know, make yourself believe that you're okay when in fact you're not okay. Yeah. Do you think it's also cause, cause those, I know myself now looking back, I think that I spent a lot of time, first of all, with my brain not fully working. And then that leads to, you're also the malnourishment leads to you being sleep deprived. Yeah. And also I think you're running on a lot of adrenaline and mm-hmm. your cortisol is really high and it's a lot of fight or flight. Do you see that right. being a big part of kind of people being led to think that they're fine when they're really not? Yeah, and it's it also affects mood and concentration and you know ability to take in information and apply it. It's a 
it's a long healing process, as you said earlier, Hero. It's, it's a very long healing process. It's not just about gain weight, you know, or stop a behavior. It's about really shifting your relationship with food and your trust in your body and having the freedom to, uh, you know, to eat in enjoyable and satisfying ways and developing other coping mechanisms that can be, um, can replace the ones that have been more destructive with more, you know, helpful and productive ones. Yeah. I keep leading you off track to to how you got to kind of like develop your own style. I won't say anything else. Oh, no. Well, this is very organic. It's just fun. Right? It's a con. This is what it's supposed to be. Yes. Perfect. So, so back in the early nineties, there were some books that were written about non-diet, meaning let people eat whatever they want to eat. That's, and I started reading them and there was psychology to it, which is if you let people eat whatever they want to eat, they won't feel so deprived. However, I was and am a registered dietitian nutritionist and the reading that in those years was, oh my goodness. I mean, how can I tell people to eat whatever they want to eat? I'm a nutritionist. I know which foods are healthier, quote unquote, than others. But if I put putting that together, I'm sorry, uh, putting that doubt in that area together with the psychology of it, I recognize we have to look at mental health, not just physical health. And so much more important for a person to have that freedom to eat whatever appeals to them and make all foods emotionally equivalent so that you don't feel good about eating certain foods and bad about eating others. Uh, it takes away the deprivation and then it takes away the, um, that rebellion that comes when you try to follow some plan that is externally based, whether it's some diet out there or something that a dietitian gives you, or um, eventually you just can't do it and you break, break out of it. And for so many people, they end up feeling that shame because they're not following it, but that's their ego again, going, nobody's going to tell me what to eat. So um, I recognize that from the standpoint of, you know, healing deprivation and healing this sense of rebellion, being told what to do, I needed to find a different way. And that's, so I started to have ideas about a book. I didn't have a name. Actually, I think I was going to call it something like the Tao of eating, or I wasn't sure, but I started to put some chapters on, you know, chapter headings on the computer and wrote a little bit. And then my co-author, um, who lives an hour away, was in Los Angeles once a week to see some clients up here, and she was renting some space for me. And so she was in my office, and she had written one book, which I, I don't know if she laughs about, but it's called Eating on the Run, which is kind of antithetical to intuitive eating. But in any case, um, she had had a book, she had an agent, and um, one day I happened to see her in the hall, and she looked a little disgruntled, and I said, Oh, Evelyn, what's the matter? And she said, Oh, I'm so frustrated. I'm writing this book with a psychologist who doesn't know how to write. And I had this like moment of being, a Virginia Woolf moment of being, where I said, That's it. It was an inspiration. I said, Evelyn, I'll write it with you. I knew I had all the psychology, so I could replace the psychologist, the writing in that arena. And um, fortunately, we wrote the book together and um, we were able to, we got three offers from three different um, publishing companies and um, we picked St. Martin's Press and that's how it began. Wow. And it's been 
how many languages is I know you gave it to oh, Russian. Many. Right? It's in so many languages and the new book is about to be translated into Spanish and French and I don't need, I don't have the list in front of me but many different languages um, which is pretty exciting. Yes, and there will be an audiobook of this new book and Evelyn and I will be reading the foreword and introduction but then they the the audio company wants to have a professional reader do the whole book. So that's coming up soon as well. What is this new book? What does your first book kind of touch on the most? And then what about like, can you talk a little bit about what each of your books? Um, well, so the, the very first intuitive eating book was um, simply talking about the principles of intuitive eating. And uh, what are the foundational principles? of intuitive The foundational eating? principles? Well, I probably won't get them in order because I, I change them around and don't teach them in order. But the first one is, <laughs> excuse me, is reject the diet mentality, which is really uh, anti-diet, rejecting diet culture. And the second the second one that I like to work with is um, satisfaction, find satisfaction in eating. And the only way to get to satisfaction is, number one, believing you have a right to have joy and satisfaction in your eating. And uh, number two, being able to stay present to what is enjoyable, what tastes, what textures, um, what temperature of food, what kind of environment are you living in, and having one of the principles is make peace with food. So having made this, as I said before, all foods emotionally equivalent so that you really can pick anything that appeals to you and not feel bad about it. So that's one of the principles. Another one is um, um, reject the no, that's reject the diet mentality. It's challenged um, the food police. And that's all the people around you and social media and doctors and everybody who are telling you this is good food, this is bad food, this is what you should eat, this is what you should weigh. It has to do with body size as well. Reject diet culture, the toxicity of it, and speak up for it. And then there's um, uh, cope with your feelings and we changed the title it used to be cope with your feelings without using food and we decided in this new book that it needed to be cope with your feelings with kindness because um, it just we just didn't like that old title of it there's also respect your body there is hunger honor your hunger there is um, the fullness uh, I don't <laughs> I can never remember exactly, but it's, you know, kind of honoring your fullness. And then there's um, what's called um, movement, feel the difference. And rather than exercise, it's about how can you move your body and just feel good. That's yeah, joyous. That's fun. Yeah, that's fun, yeah. joyous, that you really, you know, want to do rather than feel that you have to do. Yeah, there can be, I know that um, there just being somebody who lives I mean, I think anywhere now with social media, if you're living anywhere, you kind of have access to this like pop culture fitness craze, but especially right. living in LA, I think that there's such a kind of um, like indirect pressure to abide by this practice of very intense, rigorous exercise to get your body to look like there are all of these words like shredded and lean and cut and fit and like there are just so many and it all kind of looks the same this in Im the image that we're fed i think to both met having both ben is a very um fitness oriented man he really enjoys the gym way more than i do but he really does have a lot of body awareness and for him it's really it's in a healthy positive way and for me i, I think that i've arrived in this place of 
um, kind of like honoring my fitness and my athleticism because I am a, an athletic person and I do enjoy working out for whatever that looks like for me. Um, and both of us, I, I see this kind of image that he as a man is, is fed and then this image of, for me as a woman and it both kind of like, there's this model that we're given of what we're supposed to be trying to get to. And I think, um, yeah, it's really, there's a lot of pressure there for what exercise now, especially for young people, um, yeah. what exercise and fitness is supposed to look like. And well, it's way less about the mental aspect of it and much more about like, this is what you're supposed to look like in this outfit. And well, that, you know, diet culture presents this culturally thin ideal for women and muscular for men and tells you that if you don't reach that, there's something wrong with you and gives you all these rules and, and good foods and bad foods and ways you need to exercise. And clean and dirty. Those are big words. Oh, clean. yes. I hate clean. The whole concept of clean eating. It's like what food didn't and fall on the ground? Branding is everywhere. Oh, it's just awful. And it's, it's also, it's a social justice issue too, frankly. I think that there's so much weight bias and weight stigma and so much oppression in our world. And we're so aware now at this time of, you know, racist, you know, syst systemic racism and yeah. there's systemic weight stigma as well. And so, yeah. yeah, so it's getting rid of that. Anyway, just to finish where we were, cause we are getting off track, but the last uh, principle is gentle nutrition, which means, and it's always at the end of all of the books because, um, you need to make full peace with all foods before you can get to a place of saying, you know, maybe I don't eat enough vegetables. Let me, you know, I think it might be a good thing for me to put some more vegetables in my life, but it's not, it doesn't trigger this feeling of vegetables are good and I shouldn't eat that, you know, piece of pie kind of thing. So that's, those are the principles. So the first book, the first edition, which came out in 1995 was simply a discussion of the 10 principles. The second edition, which came out in, um, Gosh, I don't even remember now, maybe 2003, perhaps, maybe not, <laughs> I don't remember. Um, it was the first edition without any changes with an addition, uh, additional chapter on eating disorders, which I wrote. And so that was the second edition. And so really up until, I think the third edition came out in 2012, up until 2012, it was a very old book because it was written so, you know, in the early 90s. Yeah. By the time the third edition came out, um, well, there was an additional chapter, uh, two, two additional chapters, one on the research uh, under, you know, behind intuitive eating. When it, intuitive eating began, there was no research. It was just clinical. Right. But now there have been over 130 studies validating intuitive eating uh, for, as an evidence-based process. So in 2012, there weren't as many studies, but there was a chapter on the studies and then a chapter on how to raise kids and teens as intuitive eaters. Hmm. And my co-author and I tried to be aware of any weight focus in that book because the first book said, reach your natural weight. So it actually was promoting it as a way to, um, not as a diet to lose weight, but if you eat right, if you eat intuitive, intuitively, your body will be you know, where it's meant to be. But unfortunately, that got, um, you know, attached to diet culture, in a sense, because people thought of it as a weight loss plan, which it's right. not. So finally, for this fourth edition, which we wrote last year that came out this year, we cleaned it all up. First of all, it's gender neutral, all the language is gender neutral. 
and uh, we're really talking about weight stigma and oppression and, and social justice. And the chapter on the studies got enlarged to you know, account for a lot of the new studies. And then I added something to the Raising Kids chapter, which is called Baby-Led Weaning or Baby-Led Solids. And it's basically intuitive eating for babies. Rather than spoon-feeding babies, it's about letting the babies decide when they're ready to eat and they sit with the family around you know family meal and see what the parents are eating and grab for the food and it's a really wonderful way of bringing up a child so that they can retain their intuitive eating signals that's incredible first of all with the social justice additions to this book i think there's honestly like no better time to introduce Correct. that to to the narrative of your of your work i think it's obviously we're in a really turbulent time in terms of social justice. And I think that um, it does in a lot of ways that we wouldn't be like immediately aware of. It does affect um, everyone's mental health and especially that does not exclude eating disorders. So I think that's an amazing addition. And then with, um, with the thing, with the topic of the relationship between parent and child as pertains to eating disorders, that's also something I wanted to talk to you about because I think that one of the first things that we dealt with, I don't know if it was you that, that spoke to my mom or if it was my other therapist that did. I think it yeah, might I be did you. Too. You uh-huh. did. Mm-hmm. So my relationship with my mom, as you know, we've always been so close. She, I was in a uniquely luck, lucky situation where I think that a lot of people that go through eating disorders, especially um, kids that are still in the house with their parents. When I really started going through mine, I had just gone to college, but I was very much still a child of my parent. And I think um, when people are in that position that are going, or young people that are going through eating disorders are still kind of like under the guise of their parents, a lot of parents can make their children feel, even if it's subconscious, a lot of shame. Um, A lot of parents try to take control of the the child's treatment in a really unhealthy way. I think that that can go wrong in a lot of ways. I was lucky enough to have a mother that really, or two parents, but mostly my mother was the one who dealt with it, um, honestly. And she was very, very accepting of everything I was going through. She never took the power away from me. All the decisions were mine. She really made an effort to, um, to just be really sensitive with me about it. But there still were times that were very difficult because I think that for anyone with a loved one dealing with an eating disorder that they haven't been through, there can be a lot of language and tone that is triggering to the person with the eating disorder. And they don't know, like my mom never was intentionally triggering me or trying to hurt me, but there were a lot of times where I would be triggered by something she would say or a way she would say something or something that she would do. And you talked to her about that and kind of gave her a little bit of guidance on how to be more sensitive in ways that she wouldn't have been aware of. And so I was wondering if you can talk about just um, how people with loved ones dealing with eating disorders might go about approaching them, talking to them when they, when they has when the subject has been broached, just kind of all of that dynamic. Well, I think the first piece, and you said that, you know, uh, you mentioned someone who had not had an eating disorder. I think in many of the cases, many of my clients, there is intergenerational eating disorders. And so I think it's um, parents, grandparents taking a look at their own relationship with food in their body. So it starts with 
making sure that they're um, not making judgmental fat phobic comments about themselves, uh, which kids pick up on. You know, sometimes I've had parents say, well, I never said anything to my daughter about her weight. However, all she, all she's, the parent is doing is saying, oh my God, I can't believe my stomach's not flat anymore or, you know, things like that. Watching their parents pick apart their own body. Yes. And so then they learn to be, you know, self-judgmental. So I think that's the first piece is just clean up your own, you know, relationship with food and understand how powerful it is as a parent. And a father's opinion is extremely powerful. If a, if a father talks about other women and how they look, um, this is, you know, kind of old school, but it, it still happens today, then uh, especially a young girl will start to question her own, you know, desirability. Uh, so, so both parents really have to take a look at, um, you know, what they say and, and how impactful that might be on their child. And then once they're realizing that something is going on, they can see it, they can see that their child is you know, uncomfortable eating or going in the other room, you know, when the parent, when the family's eating or, you know, there's, they're noticing behaviors. Sometimes they're noticing um, wrappers, candy wrappers or things under the bed, you know, where people, where kids are hiding food. So I think the first thing to do is to sit down with the child and say, um, I'm just wondering if there's anything you want to talk to me about. And is there anything troubling you about school, about friends, you know, look, to what the source of this is before you even start about the talking about the eating because kids especially teenagers are going to get very defensive and say i'm fine i don't you know. panic in the person yeah so it's really going to the source of i'm here for you anything you need to tell me i'm here to listen and be with you and and then um and any source of, you know any other resources if would you like to talk to a therapist you know if there's anything going on and then, you know, if they're not going to relate it to the eating, a parent's job is to save the life of their child. So if there's a teenager or a young person who is literally starving themselves, then they do have to be in treatment. And it's very, it's very hard if, a, you know, from this autonomy piece, if a, if a kid wants to deny it um, and doesn't want the help, it's very hard. But sometimes, sometimes they have to go into residential care because, um, they need to be fed. I mean, the bottom line is we have to feed the body and the brain. And so, you know, so it's a, it's a continuum of how, um, you know, how extreme the disconnected eating might be. What would you say um, for people? I know that like when I started going through my eating disorder, I, it really affected a lot of my friendships. And I think that a lot of my friends really struggled with how to talk to me about it. Cause it was very, it's not something that you can really hide. Um, especially when you have it as severely as I did. Um, and so I wanted to ask you about for friend, for people with loved ones who are struggling, like right. for my friends, for example, what, how would you recommend that they go about? Like, talking well, I mean, it's, it's a similar thing, first of all, looking at their own eating behaviors, but also um, being able to go to their friend and say, I love you. And I know something's up. I know you well, we've been friends for a long time. I know something is up. And then the person's going to say, no, no, everything's fine. But I think to be really direct as a friend, see, it's a different relationship than a parent. And to bas basically say, you know, I know it, don't bullshit me. I know something's going on. I'm here for you. Talk to me. Let me just be there to support you emotionally. And I think it's important that you tell your parents. 
Yeah, so to approach with love and radical acceptance. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah. I'm so sorry. I just want to ask one last question. Yes. For people who don't have, I was very lucky to be able to see you and be a patient of yours and to even have, like, besides you, the resources that I had, one of those being being an, an accepting parent. Mm -hmm. For people that don't have those luxuries and who are kind of going at it alone and who don't have either like the money or the resources to get really high quality help, what would you recommend as just some simple practices for people that are struggling and who kind of like feel really lost? What would you recommend? Well, the first thing I would recommend is the, um, the teen book that I wrote, the Intuitive Eating Workbook for Teens, even if people are adults because it speaks to the teenager in everyone. And um, it's something that is affordable and they can use as a guide to really start challenging their beliefs about eating. It's not an eating disorder book, but it helps them really look at um, the impact of diet culture and, th and you know how hard it is for them to live in this world with social media and things like that. There's or an organization called NIDA, um, National Eating Disorder Association, which has resources for people who have, you know, who don't have the funds. Um, they can also perhaps connect them with someone who's willing to do some pro bono work. I'm doing some of that now for, um, for someone who doesn't have the funds. Um, and, uh, you know, when, what do you think about like OA? Because I went to some OA meetings. I want to know what you... Well, I have problems with OA because uh, typical, first of all, OA is not run by uh, professionals. Right. It didn't work the best for me. I just want to put it out there, but I yeah. think there's something beneficial about the, the environment of, of group talk. Group is wonderful and supportive if it's a group that's not telling you what you should weigh and what you should eat. And right. often many of the OA groups are uh, set up on abstinence concepts so that if you've had some eating disorder behavior like purging or restricting, you set up an abstinence and saying you won't do it. But the problem is you can do that for a while. And then if the day comes that you do have some old behaviors come up, you end up feeling like a failure. So yeah. I don't like the abstinence model. Yeah. I like the idea. You kind of start over. I think there are eating disorder EDA meetings that are more neutral, that aren't compulsive overeaters, and uh, they are free. And I know Center for Discovery, which is a treatment program in California, or maybe other places too, has, has free EDA groups. So groups are great. It's just that OA does not typically work. Thank you so, so much for talking to me. You're welcome. And yeah. glowy and happy. Um, and I hope I get to hug you soon. Yes. Oh, I so miss that. I, I, and many of my colleagues are talking about not going back to offices, that they're just going to do virtual work. Yeah. I can't do that. I, I, I mean, maybe I'll stay home a couple days a week after I'm able to go back, but I need to hug my clients. <laughs> or at least right. Hug them from six feet away. Yeah, virtual hug. The elbow. The elbow. Bump. The elbow well, Thank you so much. I so appreciate you. You're, you're welcome. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Bye.